Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as you know, we took a break uh, from our study here in uh, Hebrews to, to kind of look at uh, 1 Corinthians last week in the resurrection. And, but now we're going to get back into our, our study here in the book of Hebrews. And so if you've maybe come because you came on, you know, Resurrection Sunday uh, and, and you kind of say, well, where, where are we at? What, what are you guys doing? I just want to give you a brief. And for those of you that maybe have been here and you know, have already forgotten kind of a little bit about Hebrews, um, Hebrews is a, is a book that we don't really know the, who the author is. There's some speculation, but we really don't know who the author is. Um, it was written uh, to um, Jewish people. That's why it was called Hebrews, to the Hebrew people. So the, the audience was obviously Jewish. Uh, but, but believers, and so people that had come to know Christ after the, the resurrection and as the church began to get started, um, and, and they became believers. But as you can imagine, and we've talked a lot about this over the last probably year or so, if you've been believing in the law, and in other words, all of the Old Testament and, and all the, the, the Ten Commandments, and that that's what you needed to, uh, that's what saved you, that's how you lived your life, and, and all the traditions that came with that, and, and all of that, and all of a sudden, somebody comes on the scene and says, I fulfilled all of that, and now it's time to kind of shift gears, and I am the Messiah, and, and now I fulfilled all that, and now, now it's a, a new covenant, it's a new thing that's happening. It was hard for some of those Hebrews, some of those Jews, to kind of switch gears. Yes, Jesus had risen from the dead, and, but not everybody saw him risen from the dead. Obviously, they saw many of his miracles. And, and so what we're seeing here is, is that some of the Hebrews and the, the Jewish believers maybe are struggling. And, and, and so this writer's writing to them, really specifically to them, because what he's saying is, is I want to help you understand and have confidence in who Christ is, and he really is the Messiah. And the primary way he does that is he, looks, he takes them back into the Old Testament and he reminds them of all the things in the Old Testament that, that were prophesied about Jesus, were promised about Jesus, the pictures, the patterns that were in there about Christ and about the Messiah. And then he says, now look, this is him. This is him. Right? And so that's really the, the primary role here of what's going on here. And so as I was kind of thinking through this, this idea of, who, did they, who could they trust? You know, a couple weeks ago we looked at, um, in fact, even last week, actually, we looked at the resurrection, that the reason they could trust this is because there was evidence. It's the one thing I, I really just, I'm so grateful for the Lord, is that he provided historical evidence. He provided prophecy. He provided all sorts of eyewitness testimony. This isn't something that, that's some ancient book that says, well, this happened thousands of years ago, and I know there's no evidence of any of it, but just believe it. Because, you know, there are books out there like that and other denominations or other, I should say, cults that, that someone wrote a book and said, this is what happened. And if you grew up in the Mormon church, I believe that is absolutely one of them. It said, this is what happened. All these civilizations, all these wars, all these cultures, and, and no one, anthropology, archaeologists, cannot find any of that in the world. And it's only about 200 years old. And, and so the great thing about the scripture is, is that we have confidence. We can take confidence in it. I think about this idea of who we can trust. You know, we, we, have, we live in this world right now where, um, you know, the, the things like fake news and, and we listen to politicians or we listen to uh, media outlets and, and political commentators. Do you sometimes wonder, like, who is telling me the truth? Like, 
and it's their truth, it's what they believe, but, but really kind of getting to the actual truth of something. I think that's really kind of where the Hebrews were struggling here. Like, they're having all of these different voices. There's the Jewish people that have not believed, and they're saying, no, you, you, have, to, you have to live this way. And, and Jesus says, hasn't come. The Messiah hasn't come. You must be circumcised. All of these things. It's not true. And then there's the Greeks, and they're saying, you know, we don't even understand who your God is, and that's not true. And, and we live in a very similar world today. There's all sorts of world views and, and things that we look at and, and our children, I've said many times, I mean, that's one reason, I mean, we should be involved in our children's life regardless, but your kids are having every worldview thrown at them on their phone, on TV, on 24-hour news. I mean, every view that anyone could ever have, some of the most um, outlandish views, some that are very similar to Christianity, can be very confusing and deceiving. The great thing about, or I shouldn't say the great thing, the, the ominous thing about the enemy is, is that many times he mixes much truth with a little bit of lie, with a little bit of deceitfulness. In fact, many of the cults are very much that way. Um, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and all of those things take a lot of who Jesus is and move it into their their narrative and talk about it, but then who he really is is not really clear, and, and they distort that. And so here in the same sense, uh, these people wanted to know who should we trust? Why should we trust him? And so this idea here is, is that in the beginning of the book, the author kind of starts out in first and says he is superior to all things. We looked at that a few weeks ago. He is superior to all things. He is not only superior, he's higher than the angels. He's superior in worship. In other words, he is worthy of worship. He's the creator of all things. He's before all things. We, we use the word preeminent. He's before all things. He was the, the firstborn, all of those things, of the dead. This idea that he was the first one to be raised bodily in a, in a glorified body. So then we, we get to this place where I think a couple weeks ago, Brian, Pastor Brian talked about that our salvation is in Christ. And that's really the point of the author again. He's saying this is where we find forgiveness in the Messiah. And so you need to, you need to understand who he is and to believe. I talked a few weeks ago about this idea, the danger of drifting from that truth. And he references them he's, because some of them are, are, are challenged to hold on to the truth and they want to drift away because people are constantly pulling at them. And, and I would probably suggest that some of you feel that way. You have family members or, or maybe the culture or the media are constantly kind of pulling at you and, and saying, no, is that really true? They don't say it that way, but they're presenting another belief and, and they're saying, no, this is true. This is true. I mean, where's one of the places we see that all the time? And this idea of evolution. It's in schools. It's in, on Channel 16. It's on PBS. It's in cartoons. It's everywhere. It's saying that, no, the earth is millions and millions of years old. Man evolved. That doesn't come out and say exactly that that way, but it's in all of it. It's everywhere. I mean, if you really sit down and start watching and critiquing what's on TV, it's, it's, there's so much deception in there. And so I just want to encourage you to be very careful and very discerning about what you're allowing your children to watch, what you're watching. Uh, even today, I'm, I'm wrestling with some of the things that when I turn the TV on. I'm like, is there anything? I, I had to close my eyes the other day. We were just watching regular TV and, just, and pray for what was on the TV and say, Lord, help me not to be affected by this. I, I wanted to watch some. When I read the news, I'm, I'm pulled in different directions, and I, I want to make sure. And so I just want to encourage you with that, that the, the Hebrews were struggling with the same things that we are. Is Christ really who he says he is? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? And as we said last week, I believe he absolutely did, and we, we can take confidence in that. And so I want to read to you a little bit um, 
about what we read two weeks ago because that really kind of sets up our passage from today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to have you open up to Hebrews chapter 2, the last part of 2, verses 14 through 18. Because we start out, as Alan read today, the, the first word there in our text today is therefore. And so that always looks back at what someone has just said. And so I want to go back and kind of read what was just said in the letter and so that we can kind of tie these together. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Notice that he does it here too, and I'm not going to explain this one. But since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in the same things. He's talking about Christ here. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right? This idea of lifelong slavery to sin and death. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, the offspring of Abraham would be believers, right? So he's not, he didn't come to save the angels. They, they haven't, he's not coming for them. He's coming for humanity, for those that will come to know him. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Right? So he had to become human, right? He had to be fully man. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'm going to talk about propitiation here in a minute in case you don't know what that means. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This idea that he was tempted. He was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. He suffered uh, the rejection of people. He's saying, I'm identifying with you. We are going to face temptation every day. We are going to face rejection all the time in the world. We're going to suffer physically, and sometimes we're going to suffer um, emotionally and mentally for, for some of the things that take place in our life. Sometimes we're going to suffer specifically for the gospel. For following Christ, we're going to suffer. Sometimes we're going to suffer because we live in a fallen world and we are going to have illnesses and hardships and people are going to hurt us because there's sin in the world. All right, so with that said, what is it, what's, what's the thought here? What's the big idea before we jump into our text? Is that our confidence is in the person and plan of God. That's really the, the theme in a lot of ways of all of Hebrews here, but our confidence is in the person and the plan. In other words, Jesus came, but, but the Father had a plan. Jesus came for purpose. It wasn't just he came and said, I'm going to live sinlessly, and I really don't you know, know what's going on here, but my Father. No, there was a plan specifically. In fact, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, not my will, your will. He's acknowledging that the Father has a plan. And so he can trust it. He can die. He can go to the cross because he knows that his Father has a plan that's going to come about just as the Father has purposed it and willed it to happen. So our confidence is in the person and end the plan of God. So as we look through today's text, we're going to look at probably five things that I want to say that we can draw out of this that we say we can be confident in this. Right? One of the things that the writer's doing is, is giving them confidence, right? Giving them confidence. So let's pick it up the first verse here, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, based on what I just read about that this, this He's died for us, he's, he's, he's identified with us, he's suffered for us, he's, he's been tempted like us. And so the, the author is just saying, because he's, he's satisfied the justice of God, Jesus has done all of these things. So now the author is saying, therefore, holy brothers, I'm going to go back and we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse. 
Holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, many times when we read scripture, we just read right over those lines. We're going to spend a lot of time just on that line. And you may say, wow, this is, how are we going to get, I just want to really kind of show you some things here. So, holy brothers. The author here is saying that we're family. We are, we are one. We're, we're a family. We're, we're familiar is what you would say. We have a, a family relationship. And it's one of the things, I think, in, in church that, that really is kind of missing and struggling in, in a lot of churches, especially Western churches, because we're so independent. We come, we, we come to the event, and we, we do our thing, and then we leave. We, we enjoy it. We have some coffee. We, we have, see some great music, right? And we have some fellowship with people, and then we leave. What the Bible really teaches is that we become a family. And that means that, like, you got to love your brother that you really don't get along with sometimes you got to serve one another in a way that is going to cause you to have to give up some of your freedom a little bit. You're going to have to really pour into people's lives and go through some hard things. You're going to have to, to come alongside people and lift them up and support them. And you're going to have to forgive them. And you're going to have to be forgiven. And it's this beautiful picture. I mean, think about your family. The, the way you would want your family to operate, truly, and I, look, my family doesn't operate this way all the time either. We are not loving and forgiving each other like we should. And, and but that's really what we want. And, and what the author here is saying is that you're in a family. God has placed you. His plan is to place you in a family for God's glory and for your good, right? And, and many of you have experienced that here. You've been sick and people have min ministered to you and brought you food. People have prayed for you. People have come and worked at your house. Um, all sorts of things. People have taught you and, and led you in scripture and, and all sorts of things. And I just, I just want to tell you, I thank you so much for that. And I want to that to be more and more a part of who we are, about that we are connected, we are known. I've been using this word over the last couple months that I want us to be known to each other. That doesn't mean that I'm going to ask you to get up here and share all of your, your heartache or all of your sin with your life with all, you know, hundreds of people. That's not what I'm saying. But I do believe that you should be connected with a group of people that you can begin to do that. So here it is, this idea of holy family or holy brothers. But I want to ask you something. He uses this word holy. What does that mean? Well, he doesn't say just that we're brothers and sisters. We're part of a holy family. Holy. So holy is this idea that we're set apart. We're, we're um, God. We say God is holy. He's, a, he's transcendent. He's different than everything else. Even though he's part of us, he's different. He's, he's perfect. He's holy. He's kind of set apart. And he's asking us to be holy. Well, how do we do that? Can you make yourself holy? How, do you, how, how would you do that? Like, if God says, well, I want you to be holy as I'm holy, how can you do that? But he says, holy brothers. So he's saying, this family that I'm going to put you in, you're going to be holy. How do we do that? Is it possible to make ourselves holy? And this is where he begins to look to the Old Testament. And we're not going to have time to dive into every place. If you go into Leviticus and you could read, and I'm going to talk just a little bit about this. But to make us holy in the Old Testament, if you were going to come and worship God, you had to be right before you came before his presence. Today, we just come in these doors and, and we have our sin and, and we come in with all of, all of the world all over us and we just come in. We don't, many of us don't even pray probably before we come in. We don't even do that. And we come in, and, and, but in the Old Testament, to come before God, you had to be holy. You had to be clean in some way. 
And so the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, all the preparations that took place that said before you do this, before you come before God, before you do anything, there, there has to be a sacrifice for you. Something has to, to die or there has to be an offering made so that you can be made right for God. You had to wash and the priests had to wash before they would do certain things and certain ceremonial things. And it's just this big important thing that they had to be made right before they could worship God. There was multiple times of, of types of offerings, and I don't have time to explain all these. There was, there was burnt offerings, basically that someone made an offering of a bull or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon or doves, and, and they were consumed. They were completely burnt up. There was peace offerings. There was um, thank offerings. There was sin offerings, all sorts of different offerings to, to make people right before God because of sin. He was teaching people that sin separates us from God, and it, is, and it deserves justice. It deserves punishment, and it's right, and, it's, and that's what the whole system was set up to kind of teach people. And today, many of us get disconnected from the Old Testament, and I think that's why we don't appreciate the grace and the mercy of God, because we don't understand what they went through to be made right so that they could come before God. Now, we know that Christ is what does that for us, right? But, but we, if the more we understand how God has laid this out, I think the more we appreciate the death and resurrection of Christ. So holiness is not a human achievement. I want you to really think about that for a second. You can't make yourself holy. You can offer a sacrifice that is going to cover your sin. And that's really in the Old Testament here we're talking now. They could offer a sacrifice of a bull, and, and, and what would happen is, or, or a goat, different, depends on how much money you had. If you were not wealthy, you could offer a birds or pigeons or doves, and you could do that. And so what would happen, and this is, once again, this is the graphic nature of some of this that I think we just are not exposed to. If you offered a goat, let's say, as a sin offering, there was sin in your life, and, and you came up and you wanted to, and it was... It was um, Voluntary, but if you knew you had sin, you could come and you could say, I, I want to I cleanse this. I, get, I know I have sin. I want to confess this. And I'm bringing an, an offering. I'm bringing a sacrifice. And what would you do? You would lay your hand on it before the priest. And symbolically, it would convey that you were passing your sin on to that animal. And then you slice that animal's throat. Can you imagine? The, see what God is trying to get across to you? Your sin... This is what's going to require. And it's not, it's not sterile. It's not like, oh, no, I can do that, and somebody else has to worry about it. It's a little bit like when, you know, um, years ago my son uh, was um, a vegan and didn't eat any meat. And um, so I tried to support that as best I could. Um, and then one day he decided he would eat meat, but um, he was kind of a farmer. But he had to, if he was going to eat chicken, he was going to eat chicken, he was going to have to kill the chicken. And I mean, I really respected that. And so he began to grow chickens, and he would kill his own chickens. I don't know that I want to do that. <laughs> I don't know about you, but like, you know, like, hey, sweetie, go get a chicken out of the back and kill it real quick and bring it in, right? Or I, I want a steak. Would, would you go kill, you know, Betsy out there real quick in the backyard? And I know it's kind of gra graphic and gruesome here. I'm, I, I'll tell you that when I was um, about 12 years old, I saw um, my, my uncle, he had a farm, and he shot a, a, a cow because it had horned him, and he, he got upset at it, and so he decided he was going to kill it before it took the butcher. And so we were, this is going to get graphic, so I apologize a little bit, so I hope your children, I mean, you know, heck, they're on TV, they're probably seeing way more than this. Shoots the cow, the cow falls over dead in the middle of the field. 
That wasn't a big deal. Didn't even see the bullet. It was like 22 to the head. They go out there. How do they bleed the cow? They slice the cow's throat, lay it open, and lay it open. Gallons of blood pour out into a pool. Okay, now Raleigh was wanting to throw up at this point, right? And they, they drag it over. But can you imagine if you had to be the one to do that? Because that's what he's saying here. That's what the Jews were doing to get clean, to, to, to be temporarily clean. This wasn't even something that washed you white as snow as we sing. This was just a temporary covering until the Messiah could come. Just a temporary thing. And so I just want you to see this, this idea that to be holy is not something that we can do. All of those things were pointing to Christ. That he would come, that he would die, that he would shed his blood to make us holy. Holiness is a gift of God. It is something that he does to us so that we can come before him and be part of his family. Because we cannot do that on our own. He goes on there and it says that, therefore, holy brothers, right? So he's saying, this is what happens in you. You who share in a heavenly calling, okay? A heavenly calling. What does that mean? Like, God is making a calling. Well, we, we know there's a, a general call that the gospel's in the world. We, we see in Romans 1 that we look at the nature and we can see that God is who he says he is. So there's a, a general revelation out there. But what, what the writer hears and what Paul says all through Scripture is there is a specific calling for his people. That he's going to call them. I just want to read you several verses. Um, at some point, I'm sure we will talk more about this, but this is not really the focus of today's message. But I want to just show you what this is here for. This is Paul, and we're going to take it to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This idea that there's a calling. And so we're going to see it here in Paul's life. As he opens the letter up to Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's basically saying, God has placed this call on my life, and I've fulfilling that. And if you understand the story of Paul, I think you would agree with that. He goes on, though, just a little bit later, because some people would say, well, okay, that's Paul, but, but that doesn't really work in all of us, right? No, I, th I think it does. I know it does. In Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he goes on there. Now he's in the beginning of the letter still. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now he's talking about him and the other apostles. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. He's just kind of opening it up. Including, here it is, including you, all of his people that are believers here that he's writing to, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. There's a calling. Today, if you um, have a relationship with Christ, it's because God has put a calling on your life and you've come to know him. Because he's made you holy. See the tie here? You can't be holy on yourself. He's made you holy because he's put a call on you and then he makes you holy through the death of his son. He's doing this in our life. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Many of you that are believers have read this and heard this many times, but there's, there's just significance here. I just want to read this. It's a pretty long chapter or pretty long couple, three verses. It says, and we know that for those who love God, so once again, we're talking about believers here, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, once again, we believe in a person, we have confidence in a person, and a plan. The plan has purpose, 
right? God is sharing here that he has purpose. He's calling people according to his purpose. He has a purpose. He's calling his church together. Called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's doing a work here in his church. In order that we might be the firstborn, or for the firstborn among many brothers. See the family again, the holy family? He's creating the holy family, right? He's bringing it together, just like the writer of Hebrews is saying here. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. This word justified means he made them right. How did he do that? He made them holy. Because they can't do it. He set them apart through the death of his son. He justified them. He he said, you're sinful, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to justify you and make it like you've never sinned before. You can't do that. You can't do that on your own. You cannot justify yourself. We are steeped in a lifelong sinful life of rebellion. But for God's purpose, he makes us holy so that we can be his. Whom he called, he also justifies. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This idea of glorified means that that someday we're going to spend eternity with him. We're going to be glorified. Like we said last week, in a glorified body, we're going to be with Christ in eternity. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, and we will have opportunity to be there with Christ. Then he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, he's, he's obviously, we're not going to go into what he's referencing there, but a prisoner for the Lord means he's following Christ no matter what it's going to cost him. He was probably in chains here. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So now Paul is challenging the believer to say, live a life worthy of that calling. If God has done that, if he's made you holy, if he has set you apart and made you, cleansed you and justified you and made you right, live that way. Walk worthy of that. And I will tell you, after three days of hearing pastors preach to me, I'm like a thousand pounds I felt was on me, right? And, and that's not their point. The point was is that we can rest in the grace of God. But just because we have the grace of God doesn't mean that we cannot strive to live holy. And I think many in the Western church sometimes, we want to preach grace. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, now there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I tell you that all the time. There's, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. But I'm not telling you that you should not strive and, and to be holy, to want to live sinless before the Lord. That's a completely different thing. And, and sometimes there's a tension there. It says, well, Raleigh, I thought we're supposed to live in grace. We are. But I want you also to feel like you need to live holy before the Lord. But, but do I have to do right to be Right with God? No, because he's made you holy. You, you don't have to do that. You're not in control of that. Well, then why do I need? Because that shows that you love the Lord. It shows you, it's a command. He wants us to be holy. And I would tell you that, that the death and resurrection not only give us life and give us a sinless life, it gives us the power to say no to sin in our life. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us as believers. It means that we can say no. We can say, I'm going to pray. I'm not going to do that. We can't say, well, no, I just got sucked in. No, you decided to do that. Because God has given you power to say no. Now, we are not perfect at that, and we can rest in the grace. And I know there's some tension there, that, but I will tell you there's so many things in Scripture. We had this, so many conversations about this over the past few days. There's tension in Scripture on purpose. God has placed a tension there because if, if God said, hey, if you do this, if you pat your tummy, and remember those things you pat your head and rub your tummy this way, and kids would do that in school. If you can do that three times, then you'll get to go to heaven. 
Well, then we would do that, and then we would live like the devil. Because we'd say, oh, no, I can do that, and I know. And God, God says, no, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But I want you to take comfort in knowing that you're saved and you can rest in your salvation. Well, I thought you just said that I need to work it out with fear and trembling. Well, you should live holy, because if you live holy, then you'll know that you're saved. You have assurance there. But, but I, and so there's this tension. I think God wants it that way, because he knows our hearts. He knows that we, we need to, to show ourselves. We need to live a way that honors him and helps us have an assurance, because we can look at our life and say, no, I'm being faithful. I'm living, not perfectly, but I love the Lord. I, but he's saying, don't, don't wander over there. That's why I said a few weeks ago, drifting can be daily, da- dangerous and deadly. And so we don't want to drift. And so this tension is there for our, our good, I believe. All right. So this calling, right? Then he says, consider Jesus. So therefore, holy brothers, he's going to make us holy. You who share in a heavenly calling. So he's, he's painting this picture. And then he says, consider Jesus. If these things are true and God is doing all this, shouldn't you meditate and fix your eyes on that? That's really what he's saying. With that said, meditate on him. This, this idea of, of consider, it's not probably the best translation. Fix your eyes. Fix your focus on him. Right? I mean, if those things are true, then, man, we need to get our gaze focused on him. Not all the other things in the world, not all the other worldviews, but what he has done. The author is trying to take the Hebrews and say, look at who he is. Look what he said he was going to do, what Scripture prophesied him to do, and put your eyes on him. Right? Fix your thoughts there. And then he says, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Not hardly anywhere in Scripture do we hear that Jesus is said to be an apostle, right? He's the Messiah. Well, the word apostle really just means sent one. Sent one. And so God sent Jesus. He was the sent one. So in that sense, he is an apostle. So when we see the 12, what did God do? He sent Jesus to send the 12. They're sent ones. They're apostles. They're apostles. That's where you get that. And then, so just this idea, well, did he, how did God do this? Where do we see in Scripture that he sends Jesus? Well, two places. The first one, which is most of you are going to obviously know this by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it's kind of the, the negative verse of this. He did not send his son to do this. But even implying that means he sent his son. Not to do that, but to save us. Right? So he sent him for purpose. Remember, we have a confidence in the person and the plan. God has a plan. He sent his son, a person, to take away our sin, to be sin for us. I like it how Galatians, though, is very clear about it. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, This is this idea, the perfect timing for Jesus to come into the world. This is the the birth of Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's all right there again, right? He sends his son. Why? He sends us a person so we can have confidence. And he gives the details. Born of a woman, under the law. What's the plan? To redeem those who are under the law. We're sinful. We can't obey the law. And so there's a plan here. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So he can make us part of his family. I mean, all these passages are just pointing to this thing that that God is going to do something. He's going to call his people. He's going to build his church. He's going to do those things. And he's responsible and the one doing it. So what's the 
the first kind of thing that I think we can be confident in, and this is probably one of the longer points I've ever had. We can be confident Jesus was sent by God to gather the called by God to become the family of God. You talk about purpose, right? And again, Jesus was sent by God. We can see that clearly. To gather the called by God, those that he made holy, right? Those that he died for, to become the family of God. There's a plan here to bring us together, to make us the family of God. And so as we strive here in our local church, we, we just want to make sure that, that we are reminded that we are to become a family. That if the plan of God is to make us a family, a holy family, we, we agree on the gospel. We agree that we've been saved by the blood of Christ, that we've been sanctified, we've been justified, made right. And if those things are true and we adhere to those things, then we should love one another in a way that we become family with one another. Not just passing strangers all the time. Not just coming to an event on Sunday morning. No, because God had all this worked out for a very specific person to make a holy people that would resemble him and to love one another and be a witness for him. And then he goes on there at the end of that verse, and we'll get out of this first verse. <laughs> high priest of our confession. So this idea, once again, a high priest. Now we're back in the Old Testament again. So there was priests, the Levites. They're the ones that then offered, took the blood. You've killed the animal. They took the blood and they took it and they threw it on the altar. And I won't get all the details about how that takes place, but they threw it on the altar to satisfy God. They, God needed to see that there was something that died, that there was a sacrifice to cover your sin. And so they did that. They were the ones that kind of the mediator between man and God. Jesus now has come and he's our mediator. He is the high priest. There's no more need of a priest. There's no more need of someone to be that intermediate. You come before the Lord, and your high priest is Christ. He mediates for you. High priest of our confession, right? Let's, let's look at this idea of the first full high priest. In Hebrews chapter 2, uh, which we read a few weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 17, we're going to see this even in the next few weeks. It says, therefore, he was made to be like his brothers in every aspect. He had to become man, right? He had to be something. He was tempted so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I told you I would tell you what this idea of propitiation. So Jesus has to become one of us so that he can be the perfect sacrifice. He's going to be tempted like us. He's going to be rejected like we are. He's going to be ridiculed like we are. He's going to be the perfect sacrifice. He's one of us. He's a true representative. I say all the time in our political world, if you're going to be a senator, you got to be part of that district. You just can't live in California and be a Ohio State senator, right? He has to be one of us. And in and, and all aspects, Jesus was one of us. But then it goes on then, it says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, what is that? I mean, that's a word that we don't use. Basically, it just means that propitiation means to satisfy the justice of God. God has a justice. We've sinned. He said, you will die. If you eat of that tree, you will die. It's pretty clear in the garden. He wasn't mincing words. They knew what the responsibility was, and they did it. Now there's a debt that they owe. Scripture says that we have a debt that we cannot pay, and it's the wrath of God. It's going to be death and judgment. Jesus comes and is the propitiation for that. He satisfies that debt by dying. That's what that means. Really simple. Then we see... It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, which we're going to probably look in a few weeks. It says, since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Here's that word confession again. 
Well, in, in the Christian faith, what do we do? We confess Christ. We make a, a confession. In fact, many in the early church, we would, there was confessions. They, they would say things. In fact, we don't do that. Someday we may do some things like that where we actually, you guys, say certain things. It's just a way to remind us of our confession of our faith. We do baptism videos, and we do, the reason we do that, why, is because we want to see their confession. A few weeks ago, in fact, I just watched it this morning, uh, Cassidy's confession was great. I mean, she just laid it out beautifully, her walk with the Lord and how God had been working in her life for so many years and, and the, the steps that was, God was taking in her life. And so we see this, this confession. And so Jesus, if we've confessed him, he's taking that confession before the Lord and saying, Father, they're mine. They've, they've entrusted themselves to me. I've made a propitiation for them. I've satisfied them. I've made them right through my blood. Father, you don't need to do it. He's interceding for us. So let's take a look at this idea of confession, though. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, and if you have an NIV, it probably reads actually confession. Here the ESV, the English Standard Version translation, uses this term acknowledges. So everyone who acknowledges or confesses me before men I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So see, if you confess Christ, if you acknowledge him, you believe, you trust in him, trust in the work that he's done, not in anything else, he will acknowledge you. He will take, as the high priest, he will go before the Father and say, no, they have made confession to me. They believe in me. They've trusted me, Father, and I've died for them. He takes that before them. Notice how that reads. I will acknowledge you before my Father and who in heaven. So God is, through Christ, is making propitiation. He's, he's making a, atoning for us, right? All right, verse 2. Praise God we got there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So here we're going to kind of go pretty quickly. Who was faithful to him who appointed him. Basically what it's saying there is, is that he was, Jesus was faithful to God, and I could take you in all sorts of places in the Gospel of John where we spent a year where basically Jesus says over and over, I've done everything the Father's asked me. Don't you wish your kids, you could say that to you about your children? Everything I've ever asked my children, they've done it. That means they would be lying to you, and you wouldn't know that, right? But everything, he was a perfect son. Never disappointed his father, never disobeyed his father, even when it cost him his life or his reputation or pain or sorrow or hunger. He never disappointed his father. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in the house of God. So now, this is really important, now he's comparing him to Moses. Why is that? Because the Hebrews now, remember, they're very steeped in the Old Testament, and rightly so, and, and the law. And Moses was like, he was above the angels, many of them thought. Just like he's greater than the angels, Jesus is greater than the angels. They're looking at Moses saying, but Moses, man, he gave us the law. He led us out of Egypt. He did these things. Now, we know that it was God that done all those things. But they are putting Moses almost in that Messiah-type figure. He was so important to them. In fact, so much so that his, his brother and sister back when they were in the wilderness, uh, Miriam and Aaron, they were a little jealous. I mean, this, this jealousy of Moses, right? And, and so they're saying, well, who's Moses? I mean, we can do these things. It doesn't have to be him. I mean, they were jealous of God's calling on Moses' life and what God was doing. And so God summons them. This is a little bit like summons your kids to the kitchen table, right? But he summons them to the tent of meetings. 
and God comes down in a pillar of smoke. And I won't read all that for you, but I encourage you to do that. But I'll just read a piece of it. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 is an 8. 6 through 8. Now think about this. If every time that we were jealous, if God called you on the carpet this way, right? And God says to them, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, might make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So he's just saying, as prophets, this is how I related to them. He's talking to Miriam and Aaron here, and Moses is there as well. Not so with my servant Moses. Not so with your brother. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Some of your translations probably say face to face. Clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. He sees me in a way that no one else sees me. So you two need to get your act together and be quiet. Boy, just think when I have jealousy about something, if the Lord came down a pillar of smoke and said, hey, Raleigh, come here. I'm like, okay. But Christ is our, our atoning. He's the one saying, no, I've, yeah, Raleigh has done that multiple times. And Lord, I've died for him. And Father, I've died for him. And, and he's been made right through my blood. I've made that sacrifice for him. Right? So we see that Moses was faithful, but what, what, what the author is trying to say is, here, yes, he's faithful, but Jesus is more faithful. Jesus is so much more faithful than Moses. Because, see, they, they exalted Moses, and he's trying to say, no, Christ is more than that. Just as he's higher than the angels, he's so much higher than Moses. He's so much higher than Moses. Let's pick it up in verse 3 and 4 of our text. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He's just impressing upon them. You have to let go of the past in the sense of Moses is not the guy. Christ has come. Much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What's the point? We can have confidence that Jesus is greater than Moses, first of all. We can have confidence in that. Jesus is the author of life. He, in the Gospel of John, it says all things were made through him and for him and by him, right? He is the word and nothing was made except through him. But what's the second thing we see here? It says that the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Okay, so does, does the building here, the architect that built this, do they get the honor or does the building get the honor? Clearly the architect gets the honor, Right? And so what's the point? I've said this a lot lately, and I, this has really been something for me that, that I think that we just need to continue to meditate on. We have a confidence that the creator is infinitely greater than the creation. We should have a confidence that the creator is infinitely greater than the creation. And one of the things that, how does that apply to our life is that we are the creation. And God is infinitely more than we are. Infinitely more. And yet in our culture sometimes, we look at ourselves almost equal to God. No, I will tell God what he says. I will tell, God what, I will tell my neighbors what God says and what, what to believe and who he is and how he works. And, and because God is this, then he does this. And I'm saying the Bible doesn't say that. Because we've kind of put ourselves almost on an equal standing with God in our, in our world. And that's absolutely not true. So if we can understand that God is the creator and that we are the creation, then everything he does is right and what he wants, and we should yield to that and submit to that. goes on in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
Now he's, he's putting a contrast now again to Moses to help them see this. To testify the things that were spoken to be spoken of later. So everything that Moses was doing was referring and pointing in some way to Christ, even though he didn't understand that. Every time he intercedes for, for Israel, he's, he's, there's a picture of Christ there, right? When he leads them out of Egypt, out of bondage to sin, it's a picture of Jesus, right? All those things, Moses was being faithful. And even though he didn't know that, that really what he was doing is he's painting a picture of what was to come. And so... Now Moses was faithful in the house of God as a servant, though, to testify to the things that were spoken of later. Verse 6, our last verse. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. A son is greater than the servant. Amen? A son is greater than the servant. The servant had privilege. This, this, this term here, many times when we use the word uh, servant in, in the Greek, it's this word called doulos. And, um, but that's not the word that's used here. It could be translated slave, but, but really the word here, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it because my, my verbiage is not good enough, but the Greek word here used is different. And it really means that there is a position of, of a servant, but there's one of great authority. So Moses had great authority as a servant. He wasn't just a, a slave. He had great authority but a son is even greater than that. A, the son owns the house. He's, gonna, it's the, the, he's the heir of the, of the house. He's the heir of the estate. It's his. And so the author is saying, look, I know we value Moses, and that is right. But, but now God has made, he's given us a son over the house. And what is the house? And we are the house, Right? And we are his house. This idea, not the, not the building, we as people are the house of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter puts it this way. You yourselves are like living stones and are being built up in a spiritual house to be, holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. God is bringing his people together to make us a holy spiritual house, his church the bride of Christ, right? And he's made us holy, white as snow. So what's the last thing I want to, a couple of things I want to share with you. We need to have a confidence that holding fast does not keep our salvation, it confirms it. Now this is really, really important. Don't miss this. Here we can read that wrongly sometimes. It says, if we hold fast our confidence, in our confidence. So some people would say, see, we can, we can lose our salvation. If we, if we don't hold fast, I have to do certain things. I have to, I have to be good because if I'm not good, then I'll, I'm losing it. That's not what this text is trying to say. It says that holding fast does not keep our salvation. It confirms it. So the reason that Paul is saying that well, you need to hold fast, or the writer here in Hebrews is saying that we need to hold fast, is because when we hold fast, we will understand that we are called by God and we are his holy priesthood. We are his. That's the evidence of our salvation. It's, it's the thing that... That shows us, just James says it this way, right? Faith without works is dead. If you show me faith, I'll show you good works. It, it doesn't save you, but it's an evidence of what God has done in you. He has worked in you. He has sanctified and justified you, saved you. And so you're going to see those things. And really what the author is, is, look, if indeed we hold fast, when we do this, when we hold fast, when God has made us this way and we hold fast, we can have confidence in our walk with Christ. And our eternal hope is there. And that's why he goes on and he says, 
and boasting in our hope. When we hold fast, we can boast in Christ, right? We can boast in Christ. Before we get to that last one, I want to read you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. This is going to be ways out. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. This writer is just saying it again, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, if we believe God is faithful, he's not going to pull the rug out on us later. If we're faithful, he will be faithful, right? He will be faithful. So what's the last thing that we can be confident in, right? We can be confident in our boasting in Jesus. Really what the author is saying here is, says, look, he's just reminding the Jews, you can be confident, guys, that this is the Messiah. You can be confident because he has fulfilled all prophecies. He's done all those things. He's greater than Moses. He's, he's the creator of all things. He's the son. He's not the servant of the house. He's the one building this up. He's the one that's died for us. You can be confident. And because you can be confident, you can boast in him. Right? And I would just tell you that that church, that's what we, as the church, we need to be boasting in Christ. When we, and we're good at boasting. We're good about lifting ourselves up and saying all the things we do and all the things we've done well, but we need to boast in Christ. And so I want to leave you with a question before we go. Actually, a couple questions. Where is your hope? As I've been thinking about how I talk to people sometimes that I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with or, or you know, somebody that comes back to the pastor's corner or the connect area, a great question that you can ask um, if you want to kind of find out where someone's at in their walk with Christ is where's your hope? Before you even share Jesus, before just maybe somebody's struggling and says, well, you know, tell me, where's your hope at? Well, you know, I, my hope is in retirement. You know, my hope is in my, my savings account. My hope, is, my hope is in my family or my kids or whatever. No, no, that's not where your hope is at. Your hope is in Christ. Nothing else. Right? Those are good things, don't get me wrong, but, but our hope is not there. And you'll know real quick, if you ask somebody, where's your hope at, and they begin to struggle and pull things down, you can say, well, their hope is not there. Because if anybody asks, where's your hope at, you could say, my hope is in Christ, the work of the cross, because I cannot save myself. It's him. It's him. Right? So I'm going to ask you another question on that. You may be saying, yeah, my, my hope is in Christ. I get that. Would others be able to identify you where hope is without telling them? So if they looked at your life and I said, well, you know, hey, um, Andrew, tell me, tell me where um, so-and-so's hope is or, you know, tell me where his hope is, Kyle's hope is at. Do you know? You're good friends with him. I got no idea. Then I'm saying I don't know that it's clear that that's where Kyle's hope is at because our hope should be clear. If, if you're a Christian and you walk with Christ and you believe all of these things, you believe in the resurrection, you've, you're trying to live holy before him, you believe he's justified you, he's saved you, you should be at some level exuding this idea that you should have an aroma that, that the hope you have is in Christ. And if it's not, I'm just saying, well, then, then you're not boasting because your friends ought to know. They ought to see it in you. And if they don't, maybe you need to wonder really where your hope is at. Leave you with this last scripture and then we'll close in prayer. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 22. Another therefore. So I could make the argument that this therefore, and it's, I'm going to pull that out of context probably here, is based on everything that we have just said. We could probably say, therefore, brothers, and I would say and sisters, therefore, church, believers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened 
for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, because Jesus is the way to the Father. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart, a true heart, full of assurance of faith. You should have confidence and we should draw near to the throne, draw near to Christ because we can have confidence, we can boast in him. We have a great high priest that atones for us and has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf and he is making us into his bride, into the house, a holy people set aside for him. Let's pray. Definitely, Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Father, thank you for the confidence that really we get from the, the scriptures of who you are and what you've done, that you have a, that our confidence is in a person and you've made that so clear, the person and the work of Christ. And you have a plan for Christ and, and he's accomplished that plan. He has lived sinlessly and he has defeated death. He has been willing to, to do everything to please you, to be fully obedient, then to die in our place. And then because he was fully obedient, death could not hold him. And he rose from the dead in a glorified state. And, and Father, if we will just trust in him, if we will answer that call on our life to believe, as the Gospel of John so clearly says, you will make us a living spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And Father, we will glorify you in how we live. We will strive to live holy because we will see what you've done for us through your Son. Lord, help us to see this clearly. Help it to transform our hearts and our minds. Help it not to just be noise in our ears and our head and just information, Father, but help it to be life-changing. These truths are meant to transform us, to make us a new creation, to continue to sanctify us, to shape us and to make us more into the image of your Son. May your work and your word do that today in our hearts and minds. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.